Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today we're going to talk about underwater photography. In 2017, I went to Shetland for three weeks and I was shooting a series of films for the Wildlife Exposed YouTube channel. And as part of that, I was interviewing local photographers, filming local wildlife, and that meant meeting people like Bryden, who was in a previous podcast about otters and also meeting Richard Shooksmith who is an incredibly talented uh, underwater photographer and we met out on a uh, kind of beautiful Shetland landscape and asking him a little bit about underwater photography but he also goes into conservation how photography is an incredibly important conservation tool he also talks about humpback whales in Shetland and you can't mention Shetland without mentioning the orcas and the killer whales up there and Richard has spent so much time with these incredible animals uh, both you know, on boats near in the water with them, but also like a drone and things like that. So he spent a lot of time with these these incredible creatures. So this is the interview that I had with Richard uh, a couple of years ago. So what are the challenges of underwater photography then, Richard? Well, there's several challenges really. One, you've got to get in the water. And in places like Shetland and Scotland, the water's only 12 degrees, so it's a bit cold for many people. In oh, the tropics, you can go in your swimming trunks and everyone's happy. Everyone's, not everyone's keen then. <laughs> not, not in the freezing waters of Scotland, even though Scotland is a wonderful place to actually be in the water. And secondly, you need to um, you need a waterproof camera or you need to put something around your camera to make it waterproof. So for most people, there's several ways you can do it. You can There's compact cameras which are small, compact, and maybe go down to 5 or 10 metres and need no waterproof housing. And then there's sort of mirrorless cameras and DLSR cameras, a bit like what I've got here, where you need to put a housing around them. Now this looks really bulky, it's quite heavy out of water, it's got two strobes, we'll talk about them later. But the, thing, the nice thing about underwater housings, and particularly this make, Nauticam, um, which I really like, is the ergon ergonomics. So basically when I lift this it's like lifting my camera yeah. so all the buttons are the same like I press this for my shutter this for ISO and this for playback and so on so it's very easy to use your camera once it's in a housing so essentially if someone knows how to use their camera in theory they should know how to use the housing yes, everything's going to be in the same place yes everything's more or less in the same place yeah and uh, you can review your pictures on the screen on the back there's a clear bit so you can see your pictures so you get underwater housing and uh, basically make your camera waterproof and then you can get in the water and you can start taking underwater photos and then the challenges really become once you're in the water in the top maybe one to five meters of water it's lovely and clear um, you get nice sunlight so actually you don't need artificial light the natural light coming in will give you the colour of the animals you're looking at and the, you get nice blue water. The problem is when you get sort of below five metres and deeper, the light, different uh, wavelengths of light get sapped into the water column. So you lose sort of red light and so on as you get further down. So the problem is if you take a picture then, you just get like a, a bluey coloured image right. and yeah. you're everything and it looks bluey you don't have no color you have no definition no sharpness of the subjects you're photographing so we use strobes which are basically underwater flashes so these are waterproof um, you can change the power of them so basically you set these up um, on this particular lens this particular setup at the minute um, i've got a 16 to 35 mil lens so 16 mil is quite wide so it's nice to use two flashes you move them out a bit 
so they cover the whole area so you've got to think 16 mil like if my 16 mil lens would probably more or less get you in the picture at the yeah, minute just <laughs> so so we need to uh, light all the foreground so we need to move the flashes out so they cover what you want really is the beam of this flash when the flash goes to come there and the beam of this flash comes there right. and where they cross over is sort of your point where you'd put your subject matter okay. and then that way it covers a wide area in your wide angle if you used to shoot macro so this is wide angle but if you shoot macro so shoot tiny stuff you can get away with just using one flash and actually you can just move the flash over and just sort of have it at 45 degrees above the port above the above the lens right yeah. so just like that because obviously in here you've got the camera body this is the lens on this bit so your lens would end here so you can just have it like that 45 degrees above it and just use one flash but I often when I shoot macro I'll use two flashes and actually it's really nice sometimes if you've got two flashes is is sort of front lighting we call it right yes. where you just um, basically your port if I can get this going <laughs> you get your port there and you just have both flashes like that so it front lights the subject but to be honest you know just like on land underwater it's good to be creative it's good to try and yeah, experiment so you can try things like cross lighting backlighting you know there's lots of different things to try there's no reason just because you're underwater not to be creative and think about what you're trying to do and macro and, and wide angle that's fairly typical so you don't see people typically with great big long lenses underwater. no the problem is underwater you need to be really close to your subject right. so the problem is with water it's it's like a diffuser so if you have a subject matter a meter away from your lens then you've got all this liquid um, which you may see in the back of us the sea <laughs> between you and your subject so when you take a picture you know that light has got to come through all that liquid and onto your camera sensor so the further away it is the less defined it is the less sharp the colors yeah. are washed out and so on so the key to underwater photography is to really get close to your subject so you know you want your subjects you know just a few inches from your yeah, lens right. you know closer the better and then uh, you can add light then you'll get lovely color of the animal you'll get sharpness and you can make a beautiful image great so the sort of i'd say the one of the main rules to underwater photography i'd say is get close to your subject that's your top tip is it I, <laughs> I would say top tip like because because basically there's lots of good information out there about underwater photography um, there's a, um, a UK photographer Alex Mustard probably one of the best underwater photographers in the yeah, UK and probably you know in a global sense he's seen there at top of his game he's wrote a great book about I think it's uh, underwater masterclass um, if you're going to take up any underwater photography, I'd advise anybody to get that book and have a good read because that goes through a lot of the principles of underwater photography. So there's great information out there. There's great websites. So to find out about housings and cameras and stroves, there's so much information out there. It's easy to find. But the main, the main point I would make that once you're actually in the water, you've got all your kit and you're in the water, get close to your subject. And if you think you're, um, you know, get close and then get closer. Because, you, you know, sometimes people go in and they think they're close and still their images are sort of not quite, you know, not sharp or defined. So you need to... Isn't it a thing underwater where things look bigger? Yeah, there is. 
I think it's 25% if I remember correctly, yeah, things look bigger. So sometimes you look and it all seems maybe that bit bigger and that bit closer when actually you're not, you're probably still further, further away. Yeah. So it's important to get close. The only other thing I would say is, just like on land when you're working with a particular animal like an otter or fox or deer or bird, you need to really respect your subject. You know, you don't go in there and you don't spook it. You always take your time, show good field craft skills. And it's the same underwater. You need to do the same underwater. You need to take your time, be wet and careful of your subject matter. You know, you don't want to go in there and trash your habitat, no. knocking stuff about and so on, trying to get close. So one of the other points I would make really about um, underwater photography, if you're a diver, your diving needs to be really good. Your buoyancy needs to be perfect. You know, get your buoyancy and your diving good and then go in with the camera. Don't go in with the camera if you're only just learning to dive because you're, you're overloading yourself with too much stuff to do and inevitably you'll kick up habitats and you'll hit things. So first learn to dive good, unless you're snorkeling, the snorkeling you can take your time, but, um, and then take a camera in with you and respect the habitats you're working on. So, because when you go underwater, a lot of animals aren't used to the human shape, so presumably that will help you get closer to them as well. No, some animals are really approachable. Like, there's great things like nudibranchs are beautiful, they're these sea slugs, they're really colourful, beautiful to photograph macro. And I can tell you now, sea slugs won't run away from you. <laughs> well, you should <laughs> be able to catch them. They're really good. But interestingly, actually, sea slugs, if you go in and get close with the macro and you've got a strong, sometimes we use a thing called a spotlight to help you focus so if it's a bit dark underwater you can use this spotlight to light the subject and then it helps with the focusing but actually nudibranchs will actually turn and move away from the spotlights and so on so although i say they won't run away because they're sort of sea slugs the equivalent of like a, a land slug um, they are slow in moving but they will turn and move away which is a bit annoying because sometimes you get in a great position to get them with a nice background and then they sort of turn and they start to itch their way along the kelp plant, you know, so, yeah. Not helpful, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> so you've been diving hundreds, thousands of times, is it fair yeah, to say that? it is, yeah. Have you got one encounter that stands out for you? Well, like I have dived in some amazing places in the UK. I love Scotland. For me, Scotland um, has, cause has some amazing diving, probably some of the best in the UK, because it's, a, it's sort of diving some of these outer islands, it almost feels like you're the first person to dive them. So you feel like you're exploring and often these outer islands, because they're out in the Atlantic, um, the marine life on them is amazing. So I love that sort of exploratory sort of type diving with my camera and sort of seeing these beautiful walls which are covered in, plastered in life. Like some of the walls in Scotland, you know, they're, they're equivalent to a coral reef. They're more beautiful, like they're so colorful. And sometimes you can dive and there'll be massive shoals of fish there. You know, you can see seals coming in and around and with you, lobsters, crawfish and so on. So them sort of dives, you know, they're, they're, they're beautiful, they're amazing, they're incredibly nice. But if you really had to pin it down to one, one experience, and I wasn't actually diving, I was actually snorkeling at this point, it was actually last year managing to photograph a humpback whale underwater. Wow. Like I think it, well, it was said to be one of the first um, humpback whales to be photographed underwater in the UK, but actually we found out afterwards, I think there was one in about 1970 or late 70s, which was photographed down off oh, the south coast. There's always one, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, <laughs> there is. So, so we, we might have to stop saying that. But um, yeah, to actually get in the water with a, 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 
a great whale, you know, the, the great big humpback whale in UK waters in my own backyard and managed to see it and photograph it underwater was something really special. So it's good that you mentioned the humpbacks because they're a classic example of how conservation can be helped by photography because wasn't that humpback found a little bit further away than Shetland? Yeah, the, um, it was really interesting this last autumn in Shetland. Well, it was actually November, December. This group of sort of four or five, well, four humpbacks in Colgrave Sound, but we think at one point there could have been up to 10 different humpbacks around Shetland. And um, these four particular humpbacks spent probably about five weeks in Colgrave Sound. And um, obviously that time of year in Shetland, we get a lot of windy, rough weather. So we were all looking for calm days. And I was away this particular day in Bryden good friend and colleague got um, a calm day and got out on the boat and managed to photograph one of the tail flukes really well. So then he sent it off to several researchers to get a match and actually um, they found the match for this particular whale right down in the Caribbean and it turns out it's the first record for the UK of a humpback um, seen around the UK actually um, traveling all the way down to the Caribbean to where it breeds or gives birth down in the Caribbean. So it was a first really for the UK and it was a great way of showing how photography can help um, understand science and movement of animals. Well, I think it's good because I think people often just associate photographers as trophy hunters almost going out to get all these shots but it's nice to see it being used as a tool for conservation. Yeah I think, I think photography is very powerful in many different ways like the trophy shots we all try and get trophy shots I suppose that's probably the majority of photographers want yeah. to do is go out and nail a great shot How, but I think there's been a big shift in the last few years going from sort of more trophy hunting type shots if you'd like to put it that way or creating one-off great images to sort of telling more stories so great, creating a group of images what tells a really good story about a habitat or about a particular environmental problem or an ecosystem or a species and I think it's um, it's great because in a way when you think about you know, human beings, we're an animal, but we're a real visual animal. And to be honest, all the problems in the world basically are caused by humans. So in theory, we could solve them all, particularly if we know about them. And a way to make people aware of what these issues are is by giving them some visual imagery, because we are all visual animals. If you look at everything we ever do by looking on TV, on the internet, magazines, we're always looking at imagery. So if we can produce some really beautiful imagery telling stories, about particular problems or environment then hopefully that can engage the person reading and hopefully make them think and think about what's going on and it may even lead to well there is cases where images have actually been used in in um like in um lobbying um governments lobbying senates in america or canada and actually been used to be able to help um, change policies for the better so imagery is very powerful it's just that I suppose the problem is because we're a visual animal, we're probably overloaded with images. With the lights of social media and so on now, we're almost overstimulated with images. So now it gets much harder for an image to get um, the recognition it needs amongst the millions or billions which are seen almost a daily, on a daily basis. I think I read some statistic somewhere where, where there's some at light. It was, it was crazy. Like it was... I can't remember the actual statistics, but it's something like 60, 70 or even more million images a day get posted on Facebook. It was an immense amount. In fact, if you Googled it, it'll tell you it is a crazy amount of imagery. And when you think that amount of imagery is getting thrown at us on a daily basis, how do you make an image stand out? Have to up a game. 
Well, <laughs> everyone says that, up your game, but you know, a lot of people are up in the games, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, but yeah. the interesting thing, what I found recently, which has surprised me a little bit, and it has surprised me, even though I'm surprised it does, because I'm so caught up in photography and film and so on, you always think that everything needs to be taken on a good camera, you need sort of high resolution images, you need um, really great formats, film and so on, you know, for TV and for production companies, for magazines and so on. But just recently I've had a few scenarios where I haven't had my camera gear and I've only had my phone and I've actually been taking pictures on my phone and filming on my phone and it turns out them images and them uh, films and videos taken on my phone have been used uh, um, as much as any of my other images taken on camera systems like this and it really brought home to me actually it's not necessarily the quality or the format of an image or bit of film it's actually about what you actually manage to film or shoot and it made me realize that even a, a short film of a, of a really interesting scenario on a taken on a phone or a picture taken on a phone of something really interesting if it's really interesting and people really like it it gets used and it gets passed around and it will get published so you don't really need you don't have to have all the gear if you can't afford all the gear or you haven't got all the gear but you've got a decent phone it's a good way to start yeah. using the phone the quality is brilliant on them now isn't it? yeah it's amazing to be honest yeah cool. thinking uh, of giving all this up and just going on to camera phones <laughs> <laughs> So Shetland's full of all these amazing wildlife, but the last couple of years, the orcas have really been showing well, because they've always been here, haven't they? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's an interesting one. Like, have orcas been sh showing well the last two years, or have we all just become, because of the onslaught of social media, we've all just become a lot more aware of it. And actually, with social media, we all get a chance to see it. Like before, it might be some fisherman or someone walking the coast seeing an orca. And, you know, how do they tell anyone? They don't, you know, or they might message a few friends and then it just gets lost. But with social media now, like the Shetland Orca sighting page has about 10,000 members. So, and if anything gets sighted, it's posted on there instantly. So, you know, instantly 10,000 people can suddenly see that there's orcas, you know, going through Lowick Harbour or going around. So it's become a lot more um, accessible for everybody living on Shetland. And I must admit, it does seem like these last couple of years, last summer was amazing summer, and we've just had an amazing 10 days, really, um, here in Shetland. Yeah, I was and watching them just, just up the coast not long ago. I mean, you know, amazing to see them. Yeah, it, it is fantastic. Like, killer whales, like, they are a top predator of the sea. They're most amazing animals, really. There's nothing else which, they have no predators. There's, you know, nothing actually attacks or does anything to an orca. Orca, I think, is the only marine mammal, as far as I know, which will actually attack sharks. They come along the coast in Shetland and they're mainly sort of feeding on seals, porpoises, mainly seals. Um, and you do see them taking porpoises and actually you see them taking eider chicks. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Poor little eider chick and it must be a little snack for, for an orca. You know, its feathers must get stuck in its teeth and so <laughs> must get really annoyed with the little thing. But they just swimming along and uh, the, um, I, the orcas have come along the coast, right tight along the coast, looking for seals. And then uh, these uh, sort of groups of eider chicks swim out a little bit and the orcas are just swimming along. And they don't, it's almost like they, they never, if you like, put a fin out of stride. They're just swimming along and just like suck, and, you know, all in one movement as they're moving past. But... You know, this this last um, two years, and I think with the onslaught of social media, has meant that so many more people in Shetland have engaged with the sea. 
and particularly with orcas, it's brought people out. Sometimes there could be hundreds of people winding the coast, watching the orcas come along the shore looking for seals. Because I sort of went the other day, I was surprised how many people there were. There people running out the shops and like crazy yeah. down to the coastline. And you don't have to have a pair of bins either. They, they come quite close, don't they? Oh no, you, you almost, like I call it orcamania. <laughs> like it just goes crazy, the island does. Um, and they're that close sometimes. You feel like you can reach out and touch them. They're that tight to the shore. And actually, just talking earlier about phones, one of my best experiences with orcas was when they came around this headland and ended up in this little gully, sort of a five-metre gully between the shoreline and, and this island. So there's just a gap like this, five metres wide. And they ended up in this gully. And um, they were too close to photograph with my camera and my big lens. I'd run down there with a big lens. And then I thought, well, what can I do? And all I can do is film them on my... Um, on my phone and so I used my phone to film them and uh, it got some amazing footage it was really great because they kept spy hopping to see what I was doing so they just sat there in front of me for them going boom, boom, boom. yeah it was so really basically good. if you want to photograph orcas in Shetland get on social media <laughs> well basically yeah because like you couldn't run a tour in Shetland the problem is they came here they was here for maybe five to ten days really good sightings most days and then they were seen a week last Monday and they've disappeared since then you know, and uh, there's the odd report of them offshore, but apart from that, um, they're not in the coast, like not in close enough for people to watch. So it's really hit and miss. You know, people would say to me, oh, let's come to Shetland, we want to see orcas. And you're a bit like, you just need a big bit of luck to be here at the time of year when they end up on our coat, you know, tight in at the coastline. You've just got to come and hope for the best, I suppose. Yeah, you have. The best thing, if you're going to come to Shetland is don't come for orcas, come to see the otters, the seabirds, the wildlife, the beautiful seascapes, the wildflowers, and then just hope the uh, orcas turn up while you're here. Well, look, it's been fascinating talking to you, Richard, so. Yeah, no, good to meet you, Jack, very good. That was Richard Shucksmith talking about underwater photography, humpback whales and other cetaceans, and of course, killer whales. So what more do you need? Well, we're gonna do Nature Reserve of the Week now, and I'm gonna choose the Farne Islands because it's a fantastic place for underwater photography, but there's a lot more on offer there as well. So it's owned by the National Trust, and to get there you need to get a boat from Sea Houses, and Sea Houses in itself is an amazing place for wildlife. It's well worth spending time there. It's one of my favorite places to go. Now the Farne Islands itself have got 23 species of birds recorded, and up to 43,000 pairs of puffins, and without a doubt, they are the main attraction of the Farne Islands. You've also got lots and lots of grey seals and around 2,000 pups are born there each autumn and winter. Inner Farne is best known for the dive bombing terns that have a go at you. There's also a medieval chapel, a Victorian lighthouse, along with a boardwalk. So that's a great one. Staple Island is probably better known for, for the puffins. The Farne Islands itself are just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I always think of a nice bright summer day with really blue skies. Um, you can get quite close to the wildlife. They obviously don't encourage you to go off the pass, and there's normally a little rope to just kind of keep you on, on, the, on the straight and narrow. But the, the birds come so close, you don't need to go off the path. There's so many great opportunities to take fantastic bird uh, photographs. Now, the Northumberland coastline along there is, is pretty breathtaking, but the underwater scenery is something else as well. So if you're a scuba diver, there's some great diving to be had along uh, the Farne Islands. There are a few wrecks, and I've never really been into wrecks myself, apart from the wildlife that lives lives among them. But most people go there for the seals and the encounters that you can have with grey seals there. They are, they're not tame, 
but they will come very, very close. They'll investigate you, and they are kind of nicknamed the fin nibblers because they'll come up behind you and gently gnaw on your fins. And this isn't aggression. It's just them being playful and curious. A, a plastic fin isn't something they get to nibble very often, so they just, they're just being playful, really. The top dive boat there is, is Billy Shields' dive boat, and it's kitted out with a kind of lift to get you in in the water. They've got all the... Uh, kind of proper equipment on there so that's what I would recommend there are other ones of course uh, just like the boats I think Billy Shield also does a boat to, boat trip to the, the Farne Islands um, but there's other there's other operators so if you're a National Trust member you get on the islands for free but if you're uh, if you're not then you have to pay a, a fee I forget how much it is I think it might be a tenner or something like that but it's well it's well worth paying that and of course the boat ride over to the Farns you've got a chance of seeing cetaceans um, you never know what you might you might see gannets and stuff like that. Although gannets don't nest on the farms, but you do see them do see them flying around. So if you've not been to the Farne Islands, then for seabirds, for grey seals, uh, for idas, which I haven't even gone into in this, I love idas, beautiful looking sea duck. Um, then it is the it is the place to go. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. So this brings me to the end of the podcast. Uh, tomorrow I'm interviewing Pete Cooper who's going to talk a little bit about rewilding we're going to be discussing everything from beavers, burbot, uh, why you should rewild, why is it a thing, what is it, you name it, it's going to be a great podcast so I'll catch you tomorrow, thanks for listening and cheers.